The topic of our discourse certainly this evening is ardent certain energy as uh, as an important certain factor in the context of the contemplation of formations, physical as well as mental formations. To briefly refer back to uh, the uh, the synopsis, the gist of the Satipatthana meditation instructions as certainly given in the Satipatthana Sutta, there it says here, O retreatants, a retreatant dwells contemplating the body in the body, feelings in feelings, the mind in the mind, and dhammas in dhammas ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and discontent in the world, or in regard to the world. Now, the focus of this discourse will be on this quality of being ardent, Atapi in the Pali scriptural language, the noun for this would be Atapa. So, as the Satipatthana Sutta tells us, mindfulness needs to be accompanied by a quality such as. Uh, ardor and certainness such as clear comprehension. Let us take a closer look at two discourses, two or three discourses which will help us to better understand what is meant by being ardent. For one thing, the Anguttara Nikaya, in its first volume, section 244, in a discourse entitled The Thoroughbred, the so-called Patama Ajaniya Sutta speaks of three qualities of a thoroughbred. A thoroughbred of a king's certain a thoroughbred. And those certain three qualities are given as beauty number two as strength, and number three as speed. If a thoroughbred possesses those certain three qualities, then um, such a thoroughbred can be reckoned as an attribute of reality. Now, in the section on the strength, the strength of such a thoroughbred, the discourse says, and how does a retreatant possess strength? 
here, a retreatant arouses energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities and acquiring wholesome qualities. He or she is strong, firm in exertion, not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. It is in this way that a retreatant possesses strength. So the aspect that is certainly important to us in the context of the term atapa, here translated as arousing of fatna energy. This satna then involves arousing energy for the abandoning of unwholesome qualities and arousing energy for the acquiring of wholesome qualities. And the Pali term for unwholesome states is what? Akusala, yes, Satna Ram, that's correct. And the Pali term for wholesome states is? Kusala, there you go. So we've got this pair of Kusala, Akusala, and more on this in a little while. There's another discourse we can look at in order to gain some guidance as certain to the meaning of Atapa, the Pali term Atapa. And so in this case, the discourse itself is entitled Atapa, Sutta so Ardor, as Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi has translated it in you know, the first volume of the Anguttara Nikaya, section 153. And there we find the following. O retreatants, in three cases, ardor should be exercised. What three? Number one, ardor should be exercised for the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome qualities. Number two, ardor should be exercised for the arising of unarisen, wholesome qualities. And number three, ardor should be exercised for enduring arisen, sharp, sorry, for arisen bodily feelings that are painful, raking, sharp, piercing, harrowing, disagreeable, sapping one's vitality. In these three cases, ardor should be exercised. And then the discourse goes on for just a little bit more, saying when a retreatant exercises ardor for the non-arising of unreason, unwholesome states, and so on. So all three cases are being restated. 
then such a person is called a bhikkhu, as the text originally says, or a true retreatant who is ardent, who is ardent, alert, and mindful in order to make a complete end of suffering. So when you look at certainly this discourse, then the the discourse highlights three purposes of atapa ardor. The first one is to exercise ardor for the non-arising of unwholesome of honor so far unarisen unwholesome qualities secondly ardor should be exercised for the arising of unarisen wholesome qualities and suddenly then as number three ardor should be exercised to endure arisen bodily feelings that are painful and sadness so on so that's your second sudden discourse and then there exists yet another discourse of the same name namely Atapasutta number one and it speaks of different qualities including ardor and Satna the, what interests us are just two terms, atapam karaniyam, in the Pali scripture language, which translates as ardent energy it must be exercised. And the commentary to the Samyutta Nikaya then explains that atapa here means the energy to destroy unwholesomeness. So, akusala. So, when we take all of this together and we add still one more, one more source, namely what is given, what the Buddha has stated in the Samyutta Nikaya, the 48th collection of discourses, what the Buddha has stated with regard to the faculty of energy, viriya indriya. And there he states, what is the faculty of energy? And the answer given here, O retreatants, the noble disciple dwells with energy aroused for the abandoning of unwholesome states and the acquisition of wholesome states. And on top of this, one is strong, firm in exertion, not shirking the responsibility of cultivating wholesome states. This is called the faculty of Fatna energy. So when we take these certain passages and see them as as a whole and look at what is the common denominator, then clearly we can say the abandoning of unwholesome qualities, namely akusala, and certainly the acquisition of wholesome qualities. Now, this much is good 
But are you really clear about Kusala and Akusala? Would you have a clear-cut definition for it, for wholesomeness? So you might not have. And in order to fill that gap, allow me to briefly state what or how Kusala and Akusala are defined. And based on one such definition is based on a text um, in the Anguttara Nikaya, namely the first volume in section uh, 11 as well as 163. So to summarize, Akusala or unwholesomeness is whatever action that stands contrary to Nibbana and hinders its attainment, whereas kusala, wholesomeness, is whatever action that is in conformity with Nibbāna and conduces to its attainment. Now, whether an action performed, a so-called kamma in the Pali scriptural language, is wholesome or unwholesome, will depend on the presence or absence of the underlying roots. Namely, if Lava, dosa, or moha, namely greed, hatred, and certain delusion, are underlying an action, then the action will be unwholesome. If, however, an action is performed out of non or out of alava, adosa, amoha, so non greed, non hatred, and non delusion, then such an action will be wholesome kusala. The Buddha has given his own son Rahula advice on very simple advice on how to determine whether an action planned is wholesome or not. And the Buddha goes as certain follows. Rahula, when you wish to do an action with the body, and the same thing also goes for speech and the mind, you should reflect upon that same bodily action thus. Would this action that I wish to do with the body lead to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results? When you reflect, if you know this action that 
I wish to do with the body would lead to my own affliction or you know, to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both. It is an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results. Then you definitely should not do such an action with the body. But when you reflect and you know this action that I wish to do with the body would not lead to my own affliction, nor to the affliction of others, nor to the affliction of both. It is a wholesome bodily action with pleasant consequences, with pleasant results. Then you may do such action with the body. So you can take this advice given by the Buddha to his son Rahula and as recorded in the Ambalatika Rahula, Rahulo Wada Nesuta, you can take this as uh, another guideline as to uh, determine whether an action that you plan is wholesome or unwholesome. And if it's unwholesome, then uh, we abstain from it. Now, in the Majjhimanikaya, as well as uh, in two Dhammapada verses, namely 129 and 130, the Buddha gives yet another way of determining what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Now, very simple. Before one does anything, before one takes any action with the body or by speech or uh, mental action, one should certainly consider the following. Just as I am, so are they. Just as they are, so am I. One should neither kill nor cause to kill. And along the same line, we have Dhammapada verse 129 that states, All are afraid of the stick, all fear death. Putting oneself in another's place, one should not beat or kill others. So, very simple. You use the following yardstick before or while when contemplating to take this or that action before you actually do it. Put yourself in the shoes of the other person and certainly briefly reflect whether you would that whether you would like that kind of action be done to you. So would you like it if someone comes and torments you? Or would you not like it if someone comes and takes your property? Etc. etc. Obviously nobody likes being tormented, nobody uh, maybe except for the masochists, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but in general, yeah, so people don't like you know, their you know, property you know, taken. And now, 
to make things even clearer, whatever is in line with you know, the five precepts or you know, the eight precepts or even ten precepts could certainly be you know, stated you know, to be a wholesome now that action or it could be stated to be wholesome whereas that any action that certainly would potentially transgress certain of the precepts that would be unwholesome or to take it still one step further the Buddha speaks of the ten kinds of right conduct and the ten kinds of misconduct or courses of action might be you know the better you know, translation here and so, so if one engages in um, actions or tr- you know, transgresses you know, by way of you know, the body by taking life or tormenting you know, living beings by taking what is not given by indulging in you know, adultery then by indulging in the four forms of wrongful speech and you know, finally also by coveting others certain property and certain then by having thoughts of ill will and certain thoughts of and certain holding wrong views then you know, these ten forms of of wrongful con- or courses of wrongful conduct if these are involved, then clearly you know, those are forms of unwholesome conduct. So this much should certainly give you enough guidance as to what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Now during this retreat, we try to develop what? <laughs> the wholesomeness, of course. Now, the Visuddhi Magga, just for you know, the sake of fucking completion, it gives a definition of you know, the term atapi. So atapi, it says, is an is an, an adjective, and so, uh, then. Atapa, the noun translates as glow, heat, or ardor. And in terms of etymology related to the term Atapa, is the Sanskrit term Tapash, which translates as self mortification and ascetic practices. Now, the Visuddhi Magga definition of Fatna the Pani term Atapi is as follows, namely, possessing energy. And Fatna then the rational is given, for it is energy that is called ardor, Atapa, in the sense of burning and consuming the defilements. Atapana paritapana in the Pali scriptural language. He or she has that, thus the person is considered you know, to be ardent. 
Now, this term, atapa, in essence, is nothing other than what? It's a form of effort. of effort. There you go. It's correct. And the Buddha has, in his long years of Phatna teaching, the Dhamma, used many different words for effort. And so a number of Phatna, or many synonyms for effort exist, and those you can find compiled in the Dhamma Nasangani. Just to mention a few of those, namely mental endeavor, riddance of lethargy, exerting harder and harder, endeavoring higher and higher, and then striving, painstaking zeal, utmost exertion, steadfastness, resoluteness, and then having a sustained desire to strive, not relinquishing the task, discharging the task well. And then a term such as the faculty of uh, um, effort, the power of effort, right, satna effort. All of those are in, in one way or another are aspects of uh, um, or contain aspects of uh, effort. The Visuri defines this uh, mental factor of Fatna uh, energy viriya in the Pali scriptural language in the following way, namely, it says its characteristic is certain forbearance in the face of difficulty. And its function is to support the associated mental states. Its manifestation comes as non-collapse, and its proximate cause is a sense of urgency or any ground for the arising of or arousing of energy. Now, when observing a challenging formation such as a excruciating pain, then at first effort or energy as a mental factor will be, or at first, uh, at first, let's say, mindfulness is certainly there, and concentration is there, wisdom is there, and a couple of other uh, mental states are uh, also there. And so, effort to some extent is certainly also there. Now, when observing that excruciating pain over a longer period of time, sooner or later, the mind suddenly can no longer uh, handle 
or withstand the intense sudden pain and the mind starts crumbling which means some of the vital mental factors like mindfulness mindfulness concentration wisdom might start falling away and it is in such a context that as a retreatant one needs to boost one's sudden effort to keep to support one's sudden mind so to support the associated states that are on the verge of falling away if that is suddenly given, then quite naturally the manifestation of Fatna that comes in the form of a mind that is not collapsing. Now, what we shall do, or what we shall explore next, are a couple of really practical aspects relating to uh, effort or that energy. One way this certain. Uh, effort or energy in the works is and as mentioned in an earlier briefly mentioned in an earlier dhammaton it's the sending or the propelling of the observing mind towards satna the predominant object of observation Now, this effort is needed at all times you know, during all, you know, all you know, during our entire you know, waking hours, during all you know, activities. It is needed you know, when we engage in Satipatthana meditation, during the sitting meditation, during the walking meditation, and Satna also when we contemplate Satna various general activities. And so effort is Satna needed in the walking meditation to accomplish one hour of walking and not to cut it short. Effort is needed to sit for you know, the entire hour or maybe even a little bit longer during the first sitting session, sitting session of the morning. And uh, then effort is needed you know, during a meal when we're trying to be mindful of you know, the uh, process of bringing the food you know, to the mouth and then opening the mouth and you know, then placing you know, the food in the mouth and in particular when chewing the food etc etc So just like mindfulness needs to be 
continuous throughout the day, so too effort as a mental factor also needs to be continuous throughout the day. Now, is this easy to achieve? It's not. And uh, why is it not easy? Or when, when effort is not there, then what happens? The mind wanders. The mind wanders. Uh, that would be a point. Or what else? Defilements arise. Yes, defilements arise. That's correct. Some sloth and torpor, just a few moments of sloth and torpor might come in. And uh, so on. So in the end, just as continuity of mindfulness is required, and continuity of effort is also not required. Now, obviously, at first this will be very difficult to achieve, but we can work towards this by ever improving um, our uh, effort and the continuity of it. Effort is uh, needed to, first of all, that make arrangements for a retreat, effort is needed for the traveling part, effort is needed when coming to the retreat center and suddenly settling in and suddenly then mm, listening to you know, the meditation instructions or reading them as the case may be. Effort is further needed to overcome the hindrances, the five hindrances, when they arise. And effort is needed to maintain the purity of the mind. And effort is needed until when? Pardon me? Uh, until we go to sleep, uh, yes. And, uh, but you can take it even further. And effort is needed until we realize the Dhamma. <laughs> and uh, so this, is, uh, this goes a little bit further than just going, <laughs> than just going to sleep. Now, some practical aspects or some further practical aspects certainly regarding to uh, effort. We want to make sure that certainly the mental factor of aiming with in the Pali scriptural language and certainly effort are 
you know, nicely working you know, together. For one thing, the aiming needs to be proper and sadness of the mind needs to be aimed at suddenly the center of the object and you know, uh, just the right amount of effort will be needed you know, so that the mind actually reaches you know, the object of observation. If there's too much effort, then what happens? It becomes efforting. Uh, then it becomes efforting, yes. Or to express it differently, you know, then you know, the observing mind might, uh, might overshoot uh, you know, the object of observation. If there is not sufficient effort, however the aiming is correct, then what happens? The mind falls, sh falls short of uh, you know, the predominant uh, object. Now, we also need to bring about, over time, a balance of our effort. Too much effort will usually lead to restlessness, agitation. Too little effort leads to Sloth and torpor, that's correct. So then, how do we um, manage to um, find just the right certain amount of effort? Well, you know, one way of doing this is certain through um, trial and error. The Buddha has, in this regard, certainly given good advice certainly to the uh, lute player Sona, Sona who you know, later on you know, became a bhikkhu. And so the Buddha you know, tells him, but Sona, when its strings, the lute's strings, were neither too tight nor to lose, but adjusted to a balanced pitch was your lute well-tuned and easy to play. So the Buddha speaks to Bhikkhusona and Satna uh, asks him whether back in, in the past when he was still a layperson and playing the lute, you know, whether you know, that Satna lute was easy to play or not. And so this Satna, the uh, the monastic Sona replies, yes, Bhante. And the Buddha goes on to uh, then explain, so too, Sona, if energy is aroused too forcefully, this leads to restlessness, and if energy is too lax, this leads to laziness. Therefore, Sona, uh, resolve on a balance of energy achieve evenness of the spiritual faculties and take up the object uh, there. Now, in the course of the meditation practice, our mental factor of effort or net energy will always remain the same. Uh, 
Will it come in a standard form? Not. So just like mindfulness, effort too as a mental factor will undergo changes. And at first, certainly the effort certainly will be weak, will be um, kind of in intermittent, sometimes there, other times not there. And gradually, as we keep practicing, and we face, we have to face different uh, difficulties, then our effort gets stronger and stronger. But for a long time, we do need to put in a lot of effort into our practice. And at that certain point, one can, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita Bhivams of Burma speaks of effortful effort. However, with further practice, the situation changes and the effort comes naturally. At that point, at that point, one doesn't have to strive that much uh, anymore. But sudden, the effort becomes an effortless effort. So you put in a fair of um, a fair amount of effort, and it gen it certainly then has a certain momentum, and the practice keeps rolling on and on and on. We can further say that there is a certain correlation between the amount of effort that certainly we uh, exert and certainly the benefits that we gain from our practice. So if certainly there is overall a low exertion, so we don't try really hard, you know, then you know, we can expect certainly to gain uh, just minor benefits. If our exertion is of a moderate nature, we're likely to gain a moderate amount of benefits. When, however, we apply ourselves wholeheartedly, we give all that we give ourselves fully, and so there's full exertion, then very likely we'll gain major benefits. Now, from an Abhidhamma, the point of Fatna view, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita on many occasions has compared the main, the main function or the purpose of one action of effort of mindfulness and of concentration, namely around certain the unwholesome mental states. So in the case of effort being present, this will help to distance, keep away and block all 
near the unwholesomeness, the aquasala. In the case of mindfulness, sati, what does it do with regard certainly to unwholesomeness? Does it invite certain unwholesome states to arise? What's that? That's it. Sati guards the mind. Or you can uh, say, Sati protects the mind against an attack by unwholesome mental states. And in the case of concentration, what does this do? Especially around the hindrances. With concentration, we... We keep that, that's certainly an effort. Especially those who fought uh, and engaged in samatha meditation, jhana practice. There you go. Concentration suppresses the hindrances. So if you have those certain three mental factors, namely virya, sati, and samadhi, working together, then each one will address certain of those unwholesome states in a very particular manner. Now, just briefly, a few practical examples of effort. When observing the rising movement of the abdomen, so first, the mind, the observing mind needs to be propelled towards the object, towards the rising movement, and suddenly then, as suddenly the rising movement of the abdomen unfolds, we want to make sure that our observing mind is suddenly with the predominant object from moment to moment to moment. However, it might happen quite quickly that suddenly the mind gets tired of having to observe, having to stick to the rising movement or the falling movement, and it does what? It wanders. Or it decides suddenly to take a brief momentary nap. (laughs) So it simply escapes into sloth and torpor. Eventually, you wake up, you realize certain what just happened, you feel bad, and you try again. And then you manage to stay with the rising movement of the abdomen a little bit longer, maybe even to the very end of it. And suddenly, then fortunately, there comes the pause between the end of the rising movement and the beginning of the falling movement. Yet another wonderful opportunity for the mind to take a vacation. And it's at suddenly that point and similar points in the practice that we need to be alert and that we need to keep up the continuity of one moment of mindfulness followed by the next moment of of effort and followed by the next moment of effort, one after another. 
this effort is needed in so many um, circumstances. Already at the very moment uh, when you wake up early in the morning. So you wake up, it's cold outside, it's nice in your bed. And <laughs> just uh, recently I heard during an interview, and uh, the mind decided to simply roll over. <laughs> and uh, then uh, go back to sleep. So that would be a case of no effort exerted when it should have been exerted. And so the proper approach would be if one wakes up and it's sudden about time, we're close to the four o'clock bell, then to make this extra effort and then mindfully sit up and mindfully get out of bed. Now, the last aspect that we shall briefly explore is how to develop effort. And certainly here, the Buddha has given actually quite a number of teachings, has proposed different ways to go about this. And the very first aspect is that the basis for effort the very fundamental basis for effort should be what? A burglar will need effort to break into a house. Is it that kind of effort that we need? Not. So our effort needs to be well established um, in sila. And the reference here is certain to um, a passage from the Samyutta Nikaya, volume 5, section 246. Because Bhikkhunis and lay retreatants, the title of the discourse is strenuous, just as whatever strenuous deeds are done, are all done based upon the earth, established on the earth, so too based upon virtue, established upon virtue, a retreated develops and cultivates the four right sudden strivings or supreme efforts. So that's Satna, the very, very basis of Satna, of things in terms of effort. Now, there are other you know, ways of Satna developing uh, effort. Namely, there is a passage in the Chunky Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya, volume 2, section 173. And that certain passage you know, then states certainly the uh, 
states the following, namely, when one has the Buddha states in explaining how um, how to uh, approach a teacher, when one has investigated a teacher and one has seen that he or she is purified from states of delusion, then one places faith in the person. Filled with faith, one visits the teacher, pays respect to the person, the teacher, having paid respect, one gives ear, one lends an ear, when one lends an ear, one hears the Dhamma, having heard the Dhamma, one memorizes it and examines the meaning of the teachings which one has suddenly memorized. When one examines their meaning, one gains a reflective acceptance of those teachings which one has gained. Um, when one has gained a reflective acceptance of those teachings, then um, zeal springs up. When zeal has sprung up, one applies one's will, having applied one's will, one scrutinizes, having scrutinized, one strives, and resolutely striving, one realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. So there's a long sequence of one factor leading on to the next and to the next and finally leading to the realization of Fatna the Dhamma and included here is Satna this aspect of striving, resolutely striving. Now, coming to a meditational retreat is not much different from what has been stated by the Buddha. One investigates a teacher, sees whether that person is qualified or not, possesses the necessary qualities, etc. And then one decides certainly to um, en enroll in the you know, retreat and then one can't help but certainly listen you know, to you know, the Dhamma and surely there will also be you know, discourses on occasional passages on exerting effort and certainly you know, the goal will be described and quite naturally retreatants then you know, will exert themselves more and more.
Now, another source for the arising of or exertion of effort would be uh, a sense of urgency in the Pali scriptural language given as Nisamwega. When, owing to various certain conditions, a sense of urgency arises, then one will be ready to apply oneself, one will be ready to engage in meditative striving. So the sense of urgency arises and that certainly as a next step lead to the arising of a desire to practice and that desire to practice in turn that leads to the exertion of effort. The venerable side opened it be once in giving discourses on effort on occasion has spoken of or referred to the four essences of the Dhamma, Dhammudesa, in the Pali scriptural language. And so four essences of the Dhamma that the Buddha has first spoken of. The first such essence of the Dhamma is life in any world is unstable. So be it in our human existence or any other existence, it's never going to be a permanent situation. The second essence of the Dhamma is life in any world has no shelter and no protector. So to elaborate a little bit on this certain point, we fall sick with some serious illness and our parents will not be able to take on that sickness for us. They cannot act as substitutes and we simply just will have to face it ourselves. Or even if we wish to do you know, the practice for our parents so that they gain the Dhamma, yet certainly this is not possible. Our parents will have to do it you know, themselves. The third essence of the Dhamma is life in any world has nothing of its own. One has to leave all and pass on according to one's actions. Now, when the time of the passing away arrives, then what about our material wealth, including our bank account? Can you take it to the next existence? Yes? Are there any bank accounts, books that give you a guarantee for that? 
there is no such shit no thing. And so all that said we can take into the next existence are our are the results, the karmic results of our actions during this existence and certain earlier existence. And certain those certain then determine in which certain existence we will be uh, reborn. The fourth Fatna essence of Fatna, the Dhamma, is life in any world is incomplete, insatiate, the slave of craving. When we look at Fatna, the human existence, we continuously crave for this item, that item. So many things could be material things, could be immaterial things like fame or name and Fatna or the great intelligence and when we have something we might have we may want more of the same or having experienced it indulged in it already so many times and then we might start craving for something entirely different so it's always this unsatisfied state insatiate certain state and then certainly we uh, have to deal with. Now, deeply reflecting and understanding you know, these four essences of Fatna, the Dhamma, might lead to the arising of a sense of urgency, and that in turn you know, then you know, will lead to a desire to practice and to the exertion of effort. Now, there's the so-called Chankama Sutta, namely uh, a discourse on walking meditation. It uh, describes certain f the five benefits of uh, no, walking. And the second certain benefit in the Pali scripture language is given as Padana Kamohoti, which means uh, it is good for striving. Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi you know, translates Satna this you know, as follows, namely, one becomes capable of Fatna striving. The Venerable Sadhu Pandita Bhimamsa of Fatna Burma has you know, offered the following explanation on how one becomes capable of fitness striving. Well, in engaging in walking meditation, two forms of effort certain will be required. The physical effort to maintain the walking posture and the mental effort to be with whatever predominant object comes along in, as part of the walking meditation. And 
So moment after moment, one needs to exert oneself and suddenly this will help to build you know, the overall strength of one's effort. In particular, in comparison to you know, the sitting meditation. In the sitting meditation, you don't have that much of uh, an effort you know, that is needed to maintain your posture. At least it's less you know, than in the walking practice. For that reason, walking practice um, is ascribed the you know, second benefit of uh, you know, being good, certain for uh, good for striving. So on occasion, when you suffer from much shutness, sloth and torpor in your own meditation practice, then the thing to do would be to go outside and do some mindful walking meditation. Knowing that overeating leads to drowsiness, and certain drowsiness is certain, then opposed to um, exerting effort, we you know, understanding that certain relationship, we then resolve certain to eat um, only a moderate amount of food and not to overeat so moderation of in eating is certainly said to be another way of developing effort then when it comes to effort as an awakening factor enlightenment certain factor the buddha has certainly stated that wise attention is certainly the proximate cause for the arising of effort and the commentators have advanced a number of different reflections that certainly lend themselves to the exertion of effort. Apart from those, there's plenty of those, Apart from those avoiding the company of lazy persons, associating with energetic persons, and inclining the mind towards developing energy, those are said to help to bring about certain effort. Now, allow me to conclude today's certain discourse on effort as a mental factor required in the contemplation of physical and certain mental formations, namely with the Dhammapada verse, better than a hundred years in the life of a person who is idle and inactive is a day in the life of one who makes a zealous and strenuous effort in uh, samatha meditation and uh, vipassana uh, meditation. 
So, with these words, Satna, allow me to conclude Satna, this Satna discourse and maybe adding that by exerting good Satna effort may you overcome whatever difficulties arise, may you ensure that your effort becomes more and more continuous and ultimately may effort together with Satna the remaining controlling faculties and enlightenment factors contribute to a realization of the peace of Nibbana, hopefully during this very retreat here at the Forest Refuge. And this is it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.